Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the sixth installment of our study on the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, Dale South provides us with a fresh perspective on the familiar text of the Ten Commandments. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. going to try to do a quick flyover that I hope will, it's going to be a high level view, but I'm going to try to dive down deep on a few points that I think will help us with this passage of the Ten Commandments, which is just a foundational passage to Judaism, to Islam, to Christianity. It's, it's probably one of the most familiar passages for all these religions that we hold in common uh, together. So if you would... Uh, have your Bibles there, however you're accessing them. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to read through the verses like 1 through uh, 19, or 1 through 21. And, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not... Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, sojourner who is within your gates, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near in the thick darkness where God was. People still didn't quite get it. Moses, you tell God he can't speak to us. I mean, like, like Moses had that kind of power to, to tell, tell God what to do. Uh, we're going to slide on through here on a, 
couple of these since we've got a lot of ground to, to cover here this morning. This is going to be one of the first verses outside of the ones we just read that I will have us just touch upon briefly. But as we um, look at this passage this morning, Moses did not go up to Mount Sinai, or he did go up to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord several times. And he did bring back commandments on tablets of stone. This is true. The, the movie gets that right. We, we've kind of got that part right. But I think it's important to note here that God did not give the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 20 on the mountain for him to later go down to transmit those commandments to the people. Um, what, what we see here is the people did not receive the Ten Commandments for the first time on tablets of stone. How did they receive those Ten Commandments? From the direct voice of God. Okay, this wasn't the case. Moses goes up, God tells him what to do, he writes it down, or God writes it on the tablets. Moses takes the tablets down, the people read it. This was God himself speaking, because earlier in chapter 19, Verse 20, 21, we see that in Yahweh went down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Moses was up there with him. And God called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And then Yahweh said to Moses, now go down, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see many of them fall. And so then, then the Lord, as he sent Moses down to the people and told them not to get too close to the mountain, the final words of chapter 19, we find that in verse 25 of 19, Moses went down with the people and he did just as God said. So he was warning them, don't come too close because if you do, the Lord will smite you. And so then the very first words of chapter 20 that we just read, it says, and then God spoke all of these words. So when God spoke the Ten Commandments, Moses was still down with the people at the edge of the mountain, right below the cloud there. And, and Moses was still down there when God spoke these words in an audible voice uh, from, from heaven. And he said, in verse 22, it said, You have seen for yourself that I have talked to you. Do I have that one on here? I don't. Um, but you have seen that one. For, you have seen for yourself that I have talked to you. Now, as, as Max mentioned to us last week, there is an uncertainty about the exact location of Mount Sinai. And yet most scholars sort of uh, agree that it doesn't really matter where it was. This is the, what matters is what happened there. And so one thing that I believe does matter relates back to Exodus chapter 3. Because we like to connect the dots and show the beautiful continuity of God's word. And that's, remember when God called Moses from the burning bush? And where did he call Moses from the burning bush? Moses was tending sheep on a place called Mount Sinai, Right? And that bush was there. And at that point, we, we find Exodus, I think I have this one, 3.12. God makes this promise to Moses. And he says, I will be with you. And, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God was fulfilling that promise right here is the people came to serve the Lord and worship there and the Ten Commandments came directly from the voice of the Lord. In, in Hebrew, what you and I are familiar with as the Ten Commandments were, were really known as the Ten Words. 
the ten words from the Lord. And, and some scholars refer to these ten words as, as the preamble to the law. Not the law itself, but sort of the preamble. Um, one, one of my professors, uh, whom I really admire, is Douglas Stewart. And, and he suggested the ten words or the ten commandments are actually more like a uh, a constitution, kind of a broad-framed document here that leaves a lot of room within it for uh, some nuance there. And, and then the other commandments that, that follow were more like federal regulations. There were more regulatory laws that sort of amplify and elaborate those Ten Commandments. So I'd like us to see the, the framework here and the flow of God's law in Scripture. And, and so we see that there are two main commands. Jesus calls them pretty much the greatest commandments when, when we get to Jesus in the New Testament. And all the other laws flow from these two. So we, we want to catch that there, that, that we have the two main ones are Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then from Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor, as you love yourself. So we see that the two greatest commandments then are elaborated on by the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments then are divided into this love God and love your neighbor. The first four commandments are about loving God. The sixth next commandments, commandments five through ten, have much more to do about loving your neighbor. And as we, we go through here and we, we see how that works, we, before we look at the specifics of the 10 words, I, I want to point out a foundational theological truth about the commandments of God. And, and that is, um, we, we find that the truth uh, about when the 10 commandments were given is really, really instructive to us, uh, particularly given in relation to God's previous words and previous promises. You see, in, in Exodus chapter 14, we've already looked at God parting the Red Seas and delivering the Israelites out through on dry ground. That would be called the Exodus. And that's why this book is named Exodus, in fact. And, and, and we see the, the Lord uh, doing a, a marvelous work here. So the, the question we, we often are going to have here as we look back is now, how do these commandments all fit together? You've got the two commandments. Then you've got the 10 that sort of amplify the two. Then you've got another 601 commandments in the rest of the law. So there's 613 total, if that's a trivia question for you. Um, but there, these other 601 commandments are also kind of helping us understand what God is expecting in the 10 commandments and in, in the two commandments. But the order of events here is, is, is crucial in answering the questions, what do the Ten Commandments have to do with our lives today? And we see the Lord delivering his people out of slavery. We see him saving his people, and we see the order of that is what? He delivered and saved them in 14. He gives the law in 20 and following. That's important. It's very important because that means God gave the law after he had already saved his people. Let's make sure that we write that uh, and let that sink in into our heads here. The, the law was given to God's people after he had already saved them. 
That means obeying the law had nothing to do with their salvation. Okay. Uh, instead, the law was how the Jewish people and how God's people are to live as God's chosen people that he has already saved. Uh, that's getting the law and, and the grace together here. So what is the relationship between law and grace? That's a big, big question that, that Christians and people are all around tend to get confused. There's, there's sort of this prevalent understanding that the Jews were originally to be saved by keeping the law, and then God gave this new covenant when he realized they really couldn't keep that one very well. Uh, and, and that new covenant was about grace in Jesus. But, but Galatians 3.21 tells us, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, and that whole if and then is, is sort of a hypothetical, meaning basically it can't. If it was possible, if it were possible, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. But Paul goes on to say, but it was impossible. So God kept the promises there and made those promises real and fulfilled in Jesus. And so the, the big idea is that the commandments were never about how to be saved. They were always about how God's saved people are to live. See, it, it was not about performance. God never intended to save anyone based on how well they kept the commandments. In, in fact, he, he knew that every one of us would get disqualified by, by breaking the first commandment and the two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and you, know, you shall have no other gods before me. He, he knew that we weren't going to keep those commands. So he did not make salvation dependent uh, upon those. Now, I can just kind of imagine God... And, and sort of one of more, my more cynical, uh, sarcastic moods, talking to Adam and Eve, you know, and, and say, you know, about the tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And just say, I give you one thing to do, just one thing. And you can't even do one thing. Well, I, I think that's with the, with the commandments as well. The very first commandment I give you, the greatest commandment, I give you one stinking commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and you can't do it. But it wasn't a surprise to him that we couldn't do it. He absolutely knew that we couldn't do it. But when we're going to talk about loving God and loving our neighbors, that's where it all begins. And so the Lord God knew we would not do the one thing that he never intended our salvation to depend upon. And that was keeping the commandments, keeping the one commandment, keeping the two commandments, keeping the ten commandments, much less keeping the 601 other commandments. Because... God had already promised Abraham before any of this. Now, we go back to Exodus 14. We see God saved the people through the Exodus and the parting of the waters of the Red Sea and delivered them out of slavery from Egypt and into the wilderness there. But even before the Exodus, like 400 years before the Exodus, God had promised Abraham that, that he was going to save him and make him a great nation, not because of his righteousness, but because of his faith, we see in scripture, and Abraham believed and God credited to him as righteousness because Abraham clearly uh, is seen to have moral failings that, that if you had to be keeping the law, 
or keeping rules of even general kind of righteousness and noble behavior, Abraham would have been disqualified from any claim worthy of salvation. I mean, giving his wife over to, to, to sleep in the bed of the king. I mean, lying about it, saying she's my sister. I mean, Abraham had some real flaws, but Abraham also had faith. That gives me hope. You see, God had already saved the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt when parting the Red Sea. And now he was uh, giving them the commandments because they were never about being saved. Uh, they were always about how God's saved people are to live. Now, the truth is that I have a pretty distorted understanding of what love is. Uh, you know, I live as a fallen sinner in a fallen world. And we throw this word about love around, love who you want to love, 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 love everybody. Oh, we, oh, I love ice cream. We got all kinds of C.S. Lewis and different kinds of loves even. But the Bible knows that our fallen condition. And so when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and it says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, God says, these people aren't going to know how to do that. I need to give them a little more help. So then we get the Ten Commandments that come after that, that, that are going to help us to, to do that. And then for the people of Israel living in community together, he gives them 601 other commands to elaborate on the, the Ten Commandments so that they would have an idea of how God defined love. Because every time I become aware that I've broken one of the commandments yet again, you know, I'm just so grateful that my salvation does not depend on my performance but it depends on the performance of Jesus who took my place. And whenever I hear somebody say, you know, when you ask the question, like, uh, what do you think is going to happen to you die? Do you, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? I say, well, I hope so. I think so. But why, what do you base that on? Well, I, I try to be a good person. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. When I hear language like that, I know that that person does not understand the gospel. I know that that person is still trying to save himself or herself and has not experienced salvation through faith in Jesus because they've misunderstood the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments. They think that the commandments are about what we have to do in order to be saved. So keeping in mind that the, the ten words, here, let me go back up one here, yes, um, and the ten words or commandments were never about how to be saved. And they were always about how God's saved people are going to live. And also keeping in mind that the ten commandments are encapsulated by the two and then the further elaborated by the 601. Let's look at the commands themselves. And again, we, we see that the first four words are about loving God. The, the next six words or six commands are about loving your neighbor. Now, the first command we see here, is this a hierarchy that God says, or is this exclusivity? I think this is an important thing, and scholars have, have delved into this a lot, but when, when the Lord in this first command says, I, Yahweh, declare, you shall have no other gods before me. What does before me mean? With the mention of other gods... The, the Lord recognizes that other spiritual powers do exist. Angels do exist. Demons do exist. So wh what does it mean that the Lord's people are not to worship any of these other powers before him? See, interpreters have seen some ambiguity here, and they say, well, 
By recognizing the other gods, maybe that means there's a hierarchy and that Yahweh demands to be at the very top of the pyramid. He's at the top of the heap. You can't have any other God that you make primary over me. That's one possibility. Uh, but the other possibility that I fall with, and I think most conservative scholars fall with, is that he's talking about exclusivity here. You see, it, it's not hierarchy, it's exclusivity. You're not to have any gods besides me. I am the one and the only God that you are to worship. Now, most, uh, again, conservative scholars lean there because Yahweh was the one and only God that people were able to, to find confidence in. And we get to the second command, or the second word here is, is, he says, you shall not have any gods before me, these other gods. Is this uh, idolatry here? Is it I, relational or is it transactional? That's the, that's the question with the images. See, the, the command specifically prohibits images of anything in heaven, anything on earth, in the water, under the earth. So in other words, God's prohibited trying to make an image of him, trying to make an image of anything else that people would bow down before. So what we see here is that idolatry is not relational. Idolatry is, is transactional. Biblical faith is relational because in contrast to the idols, God wants to be loved and he wants to love others. He wants to love and to be loved. Now, when you get down to the idolatry part there, that's all transactional. That's just the idol's going to give me what I want. I'm going to give the idol something the idol wants. The idol's going to give me what I want. So the one thing that idols really, really wanted was to be fed and to be carried around with the people that, that worship them. So the transactional idea of idolatry was if you feed me and if you care for me, then I'm going to take care of you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But idolaters never worshiped their gods because their gods were good or because their gods were worthy. Because none of those gods were good or worthy. They were all licentious. They were, they were decadent gods. Uh, they, they were not what you'd want to emulate yourself by morally speaking. And so worship of the false gods did, did not involve righteous gods, and it did not in, involve righteous people. Uh, you see, their gods didn't care if worshipers were kind to other people. Guys didn't care if worshipers loved one another. Their gods didn't, didn't care if people lied or stole or killed. In fact, when you go worship the God, you'd be having illicit sex at times with temple prostitutes. That, you know, that, that's what that worship was about. It was transactional. But, but God's, God's got a different story here. He, he wants things to be relational. He wants us to love him and to love others. And the commandments are the way that he shows us how we're to go about doing that. Um, another major truth is that people who practiced idolatry in that world at the time, and even in Israel, we find in the Old Testament that the Israelites were going after the idols as well. They often had a personal God, they had a family God, and they had a national God. And many ancient Israelites followed the, this idolatrous pattern. And, and so we, we read, and I could give you the Old Testament passages for this, but Many of them worshiped Dagon, the fish god, as their personal god. We see that in Judges, 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles. They worshiped Baal as their family god. He was a god of fertility. We see that in Judges, Kings. 
but, but they would always keep Yahweh as their national God. Now, we, we may not have a personal God and a family God and a national God as such, but brothers, we can easily show more devotion to ourselves personally, to our family, or to our nation than we do to the Lord. We, we're more likely to make ourselves and our families and our nation objects that push God out of the forefront to being the only one that we are truly worshiping. So in, in, in contrast to the worship of idols, the, the, the exclusive devotion and worship of Yahweh demanded in this first word was about having a relationship with him. He, he did not need people to feed him. He did not need people to carry him around or care for him. He sought a relationship where he could feed and carry people around, where he could care for them. So Yahweh, by definition, he, he is the definition of what it means to love and to be in relationship, even within the Trinity, as beings created in his image. Now, we, we flow into that love and be loved quality of his image. His people were to be known by how they loved him and how they loved others. And that love then was going to reflect the Trinity's love. So the third commandment we see here is, what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Is that, is that profane language? Is that to say, you know, don't use the word Jesus as sort of a curse word, or don't put God's name before a foul, uh, profane kind of uh, word here? It, but the command basically says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And, and the, the importance here is what we don't want to miss is that, that God had given his name, Yahweh, to Moses and to his people because he really wanted to be in relationship with them. He wanted to know them. He wanted them to know him. Again, that relationship emphasis. And the Lord did not allow uh, or give his people the authority to name him any more than they can make an image after him. You see, all these other images were created by the people, and then they got to name their gods. And there, there was a certain thing in Scripture is that if you got to name somebody, you had authority over them. And God said, I'm not going to let you name me. My name is I Am. That is who I am. And I'm revealing myself to you by my special name so that you can know me. But don't you ever think that you get the authority to name me because I'm revealing who I am to you. And don't ever think that you can make an image of me because none of your images are ever going to stack up. <coughs> the third commandment reminds us that God's, and God's people, that they, they did not name him. They had no power over him. He gives the name as the self-sufficient one. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He is eternal. He is powerful. He is present. So to take his name in vain uh, has the idea of misusing the name of the Lord. It, it literally means to raise up Yahweh's name for no good. Okay. Now, if we use his name in profanity, that certainly does that. But the, the most basic way the verse speaks about Yahweh's name in vain would be to swear by his name that you're going to tell the truth and then not tell the truth. And I think we can extend the, the, the meaning even further here, whether it's by profane language that dishonors his name or by verbally claiming, yeah, I'm a follower of, of the Lord. I follow Jesus. He's my savior. He's my king. 
and then living a life that does not reflect that you're actually following the Lord as your Savior and your King, that dishonors the name of the very one that we are trying to, to honor. And so we break the third commandment anytime we devalue the worthiness of the name Lord and the God it represents. Now, I don't, I don't go around using the Lord's name in cuss words. Just don't. I mean, when I, when I say Jesus Christ, it's a prayer. It's not, it's not some sort of a exclamation of disgust. Uh, but I tell you, I have taken the name of the Lord in vain by dishonoring that name, by, by saying, you are my Lord and King, and then just living in ways that totally don't reflect that. Now, the fourth word, the commandment to remember the Sabbath and, and to keep it holy, requires God's people to stop what they are doing. That's literally what the word Shabbat means. It means stop it. Stop your daily work right now. And we need to ask our question, what is this about? Is this a day off? Is this a day to go to church? What is this whole Sabbath thing about? The commandment to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy is explicitly tied back to the Lord's work of creation that Genesis describes taking place in six days. We read that in Exodus chapter 20. So in addition to just stopping their work, there's this other part of the command, keep the day holy as a day that's dedicated to the Lord. So the Sabbath was not their day off, the Sabbath was his day. And, and, and I, I think we, we can use a refresher on that, guys. The, the, the Sunday is not just a day off. It is the Lord's day. So no one could ever have the excuse, I'm too busy to worship this week because I've stopped doing everything else that I would normally do, and I'm dedicating this day to him. Now, there's a later elaboration in Exodus 34:21 where the Lord in one of those 601 commandments that's elaborating the 10, he says, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest time, you shall rest. So even when things were super busy, when the harvest had to get brought in, they were supposed to stop doing what they were doing and trust Yahweh. Seem to go against all logic, all self-reliance. You can just imagine the nations around them seeing the Israelites only working six days. You might say, well, you guys are lazy, you're stupid. How are you going to make a living when, when you're only working six days and you, your harvest is ready to be brought in and, and you're sitting around worshiping your God? But it was to show that, that God is trying to help stop our self-sufficiency so that we will depend upon him. So it was not a day to stop work without worshiping the Lord, nor was it a day to worship the Lord without stopping work. The Sabbath was about both stopping work and about worshiping the Lord. Now, the next six commandments here, I'm just going to blow through them. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill. It's literally just says kill not. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet what others have. Now, I've got some other slides that are going to be kind of bonus things because I don't want to take up the time to go through those or, or to even divert the attention from where we're going today on these first four commands because I think they're the key to everything. But 
If you go on the website and you look under the slides for the men's breakfast, you'll see some other slides about five through 10. I just wanna point out another truth about these 10 words or commands. And that is that none of us can break commandments two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or 10, unless we've already broken number one. Uh, whenever I recognize that I've broken one of the commandments about loving my neighbors or even the Sabbath uh, idea of trying to become self-sufficient, the, the, the answer for me is not to say, well, you know, I, I got to do a better job of honoring my father and my mother or, you know, I, I, I just I murdered that person in my heart. I, I got to do better. I got to renew my mind. Or, oops, I, I just said something that was intentionally deceitful. I, I, I've got to be more honest. You see, when we realize we've broken one of two through ten, the issue is not to focus on two through ten. It's to go back to number one. And I said, because my real issue here was I was not having God be God in my life. I let something else take over his place that I thought was worth telling something deceitful about or worth dishonoring my parents about or worth taking something or worth lusting after before coveting something that doesn't belong to me because I let number one get out of place. Now, the offense against the Lord Yahweh was even greater than any of our offenses against our neighbor. So throughout this, this series on Exodus, we, we want to look at how the focal passages we're looking at that day point ahead to Jesus. And Jesus was the one of whom Moses was, was pointing, or one to whom Moses was pointing. He was the better savior than Moses, the better deliverer than Moses. And when we get to Jesus in the New Testament, what we see Jesus saying is, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, for I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Matthew 5, 17. Jesus reinforces the commandments throughout the New Testament, the Ten Commandments, and he takes them much, much deeper. And it's not to abolish them, but to fulfill them by showing that the commandments God's looking for is a heart because it's not about transactional stuff. You do this and I'll do this. It's about loving God and loving your neighbors as God loves your neighbors. So Jesus retold the greatest two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. He, he, had, he said the Ten Commandments and the 601 other commandments all hang on those two and, and then Jesus makes the commandments much more about the condition of our hearts than it is about keeping some actual law. Now, guys, it's those who have been given a new heart, which was one of the promises back in Ezekiel. We've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. This is how we are to live. Uh, he, he, he really simplifies it for us. I give you one thing, guys, one thing to do. Love me. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, even you're going to love your neighbors because I love your neighbors. And your love is going to look like my love. So when we do that, we love our neighbors, and obeying the commandments will naturally kind of fall into to place. So again, the big idea of the commandments were never about how to be saved. They were always about how God saved people are to live. And I believe that's what the Ten Commandments have to do with our lives today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for these 10 words that elaborate for us what it means to love, to love you, to love one another, love our enemies. I, I, I pray, Father, that, that you would clarify for us 
the order of when your law came and when grace was promised and came to Abraham. I, I pray, Father, that we, we would see this paradigm of laws and all really focusing back down to that one big commandment of loving you. And Lord, we confess today that we don't love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. I think most of us really want to. We, we need your help. We need your commandments even to guide us into what that love looks like because we're so twisted in what we think of as love. But Holy Spirit, you said you would lead us into all the truth. And so please fill us with that truth. Help us to re rejoice in the grace that our salvation does not depend on our performance or keeping of these commandments. But help us not diminish these commandments, Lord, as Jesus has reinforced them to show us what love looks like. We pray that you would use us this day to love you and to love others wherever you may, may take us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.